Someone was writing his master's thesis in a sports-related field, decided to do it about professional golf, and thought that that would be a matter of personal interest to him as well as something that he could research. He went back 40 years to 1979 when Tom Watson was all that in a bag of chips on the professional circuit because he made five times more than anybody else. And so he decided to do a study about salary parity and, and that kind of thing and how many people won how much money on the, on the circuit. To his surprise, when it was all broken down, he determined that Tom Watson only had a half stroke better per nine holes than anybody else on the circuit. That is, of course, uh, one, one stroke per 18 hole round. That's, that's a very small thing. And yet qu quite a bit in the dividends when he went to put his check in the bank. In the world of professional baseball, Batting 300 is the threshold of greatness. In fact, if a fellow does that over the course of 20 years, he's probably going to go in baseball's Hall of Fame. And it's the line of demarcation between a, a great career and one that is only average. But you break that down and see what that really means on a day-to-day -day basis when the rubber hits the road. The average baseball player in professional baseball will bat 600 times during the season. Uh, to achieve a, an average of 300, he's going to have to get 180 hits out of those 600 at-bats. And again, while 300 is considered to be great, 275 is only mediocre. But you realize the difference between batting 300 and only 275 is one hit every 10 games. That is 16 more hits over the course of the entire year. In the world of sports, I'm just saying that little things really do mean a lot. It's also in other areas of life. I think that we'll find if we are observant or even if we're not, it happens to us. It's the little things that are seldom considered and oftentimes seldom noticed that collectively constitute life's greatest blessings and also conversely sometimes life's greatest problems. In the long ago, Zechariah the prophet asked the question in Zechariah 4 verse 10, who has despised the day of small things? And that's a question that I would like to pose to you for your consideration for a few minutes this morning. When Dr. Livingston, I know I've told this story before, but I love it, so don't stop me. I want to hear it again. Dr. Livingston went on his many expeditions to Africa. When he returned, one of the reporters asked him, did you have any problems with the herds of rogue elephants? He said, no, rogue elephants were no problem. The mosquitoes, on the other hand, were murder. And I think that we'll find that phenomenon to be true in our lives as well. We, can, we have enough sense to get out of the way of an elephant. But the mosquitoes get to us before we notice, and they can drain us dry. There was a man who lived in a little town whose name was Little. He lived in a little house on a little street with his little wife and seven little littles. He went to work in a little factory, bought home a little paycheck. Someone was asking Mr. Little, how can you get by on so little and feed the seven little littles? And he replied, well, every little does a little. That's true in spiritual life as well. Look at little sins, if you will. I know this is a cautionary tale, but we need to be reminded of the destructive power of Satan in our lives. We need to know that every day, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, wherefore let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If we ever get to the position spiritually where we think that we've arrived and that uh, sin has no temptation for us, we need to think again because that's when we're most vulnerable and most susceptible to Satan's wiles. The destructive power of Satan can be seen in the big and the obvious sins like adultery and murder and theft and so on. And we sometimes watch documentaries on television about the Ted Bundys and the Jeffrey Dahmers in the world. 
And we look at that aghast and we say, how could someone ever do those kinds of things? And how do you get in a position where you would have a conscience that would allow you to do those kinds of things? Because most of us would never consider committing the big sins like murder and and robbing a bank. But just maybe it's the so-called little sins like bitterness, maybe lying and materialism and envy and jealousy that can eat away and erode our spiritual lives and destroy us in terms of our spiritual health. Most often those things are ignored because they are so insidious and because of that, Those are the things that sometimes can be most spiritually destructive. James reminds us, for example, in James chapter 3, verse 5 of his book about the power of the tongue. And in one of those verses, he he describes the tongue as being a very small instrument. What he says was the tongue is a little member and boasts great things, but see how great a forest, a little fire kindles. The tongue, comparatively speaking, in terms of your overall body weight, is a very small thing. But he said worlds and nations and lives have been destroyed by that small little member of the body. What appears on the outside to be so comparatively small can create some, some really big problems and some really big consequences is what James is telling us. I listened one day when I, as, as a political spin doctor, was explaining how that those he represented were planning to get a very unpopular program across in a particular district, and he understood, he said, that the American people would not accept it in one huge dose. But he said, and I'm quoting now, he said, we will implement it incrementally. What he meant was that the people will not approve our plan if we give them the whole thing right up front in one big dose. And so we intend to give it to them a little bit at a time until we have the whole thing in place without them really realizing what's going on. Just a little at a time in installments. And that's the way Satan works to destroy the Christian's faith. And I just wanted us to be reminded of that reality. Very few will leap wildly wholesale into apostasy. And and I think Satan knows that. But he also knows that, that, that he can sometimes get us to accept sin in just little doses. And then in greater and greater doses gradually until we've, we've gone all the way in departing from the living God. A worship assembly skipped here, a little wrong thing done or a compromise there, a seemingly innocuous attitude adopted here, a seemingly insignificant point of doctrine there. And the next thing you know, you're a lot farther from fellowship with the God of the universe than you ever thought that you could possibly be. Van Ledbetter, by the way, it calls this incremental lostness and I think it really describes the human condition and especially for those of us that are children of God we need to be aware lest we allow the little sins to infiltrate our life and to erode our souls gradually over the course of time we need to realize and beware most folks don't go to bed as faithful Christians and wake up as apostates it takes place very gradually over the long course of time Now, please understand that what's true in the negative is also true in the positive. When Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He not only said, He who sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. That's the negative side, obviously. If you make wrong decisions and even small choices in your life, that's gradually going to destroy you spiritually. But on the positive side of that spiritual coin, he also said, He who sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. 
So the good news is that when we make those small choices, we make those small decisions on a daily basis and we make them consistently, that's going to build us up spiritually just as surely as making the wrong choices will tear us down and destroy us. So that's good news to know that that works in the positive as well as it does in the negative. Let's look at our, kind of expand that idea and look at our Christian lives in general in terms of how little things really do mean a lot. Paul stated in 2 Corinthians 13 in verse 5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test your own selves. So he's just saying that everybody who has any spiritual sense at all is going to be doing a spiritual inventory of their lives on a consistent basis. Not once a year, not even once a month. You're going to be doing that hopefully on a daily basis to make sure that our standing with God is what we think it is. And I'm afraid that whenever we work up the courage to do that kind of self-examination, to really do some serious looking at ourselves, some personal inventory, we sometimes want to use the yardstick of big things, not small things. Again, the real question isn't, have I murdered someone today? Or have I been unfaithful to my mate today, as important as those questions are? I think for the most of us, the question is, have I done the little things on a day-to-day basis that will incrementally help me build my Christian character? I hope that makes sense. Have I prayed today? Remember Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 said, pray without ceasing. That just means never let there be a time in your life when you're not a praying person. Prayer must be a consistent part of your life on a daily basis or Have I gotten into the word today? Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, handling aright the word of truth, is what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Have I spoken a word for Jesus today? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, 15 says. We know the marching orders. We know what God said. We know what he expects us to do on a daily basis. But sometimes... Just sometimes we evaluate ourselves in terms of look at all the big things I haven't done rather than looking at all the little things that I need to be doing on a daily basis to make me grow in Christ and to be in a right relationship with my God. Have I done those little things that will cumulatively create a positive influence and that will draw other people into the kingdom and not drive them farther away? Remember a passage that I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago from this pulpit, 2 Corinthians 3.2 is where Paul says, you, that is fellow Christians, are our epistle. That just means an open letter known and read of all men. People are reading your life and they're evaluating the validity of Christianity based on what they see you and I doing on a daily basis and yes, even the small things. Have we used our words constructively in order to encourage people and to build them up? Or are we using our words destructively in order to tear them down? And you remember what Paul said in Ephesians 4.29 about that. Let your speech be what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Build people up with the way you use your words, even small words. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 verse 36, by your words you're going to be justified. And by your words, you're going to be condemned. But that's such a small thing in terms of the grand scale of my Christian life. But Jesus says, how important those little words are. Are you speaking a word for Jesus? Are you using your words in such a way that it's a destructive influence in the lives of others? You know, we'll never know, I imagine, in this lifetime, what that word of encouragement, what that card, that phone call, that email, that tweet, whatever... We have so many different avenues of communication today. 
how that we use those means of communication that are available to us and, and, and encourage that person who was discouraged and wondering whether it was worth it to go on. We'll never know what a little word can mean in the life of a discouraged brother or sister in Christ. Just a pat on the back, maybe an arm across the shoulder can mean so much to someone who is living in the wagon ruts of life. You can read in Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you can also read in Scripture about people who died for their faith. And it's absolutely astounding to think about how that all the apostles, except one, at least according to what we understand, died as martyrs for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were faced with the option, we can stop preaching this message of Christ, or you can go on living, and they said, we're going we're to preach. You do what you've got to do. And we read those kinds of examples, and we look at those people and that kind of commitment and the level of that dedication. And the real question for most of us in today's world in 2019 is not going to be, are we willing to die for Jesus? Although that question does need to be asked, I think, in the quietness of our own rooms. The question for us in our modern day isn't, are we going to be greatly persecuted and have to sacrifice our very lives for Jesus Christ and die as a martyr? The question is, am I willing... Am I willing to live for him, not just die for him? Am I willing to live for him on a daily basis? And besides that, it's so easy to to make the big sacrifice in order to get the publicity, and that's not what Christian living is either. See, every day, folks, we make the decisions that will either move us closer to God or move us farther away from him. We make moral decisions that will either transform us a little more into the image of Christ or that will make us a little more into the image of the world. At least that's what Paul said in Romans 12 and verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be poured into the same mold as the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, is what he said. And so our Christian lives are not going to be defined by any one particular day, or at least not for the most of us. But we're going to be defined by the little things that we do for Christ, and the little things that we determine not to do because we want to be like Christ. Here's a third consideration. Little things mean a great deal in our families and in our marriages. If you're married, let me ask you a question. Have you ever asked yourself, why did my husband or wife fall in love with me in the first place? Now, I can can pretty much assure you they've asked themselves that question. But have you asked yourself that question? What was it that she or he saw in me that said, made them say at some point in this relationship, that's the person that I want to live with for the rest of my life. That's, that's who I want to, to be my wife or my husband. And, and as those of us who are married reflect on our married lives, I think we'll find that the quality of that relationship is determined, again, by the little things that we do on a day-to-day basis. Now, you might reject that, but think with me for just a moment. Can you remember the first time that you decided that you love the person who would become your husband or your wife? I mean, it might have been when you're out to dinner. It might have been you were watching TV together on a couch somewhere. But at some point, you decided, hey, I love this person. And I would really like to share the rest of my life with them. And when you came to that conclusion, was it because they remembered your birthday? Or because they gave you candy or a card on Valentine's Day? Probably not. 
The thing that attracts you to another person, that causes you to fall in love, and just as important, the thing that causes us to stay in love and want to continue in that relationship is the little things that we do on a consistent basis. You can mark it down. It's not just that they remembered our birthday and gave us a card on Valentine's Day. It's when you need to talk to that person and they lay their phone down so that they can really listen. Or or more likely, when you're already in a conversation and, and the phone rings and they decline the call. Why? Because talking to you is more important. It's when they thank you consistently for the little things that you do around the house. And I'm talking about trivial things that sometimes go unnoticed. They don't just assume that the clothes get washed and dried and folded and put in a drawer. That doesn't happen miraculously. Or that the meals get made or that the floors get cleaned or the thousand and one tasks that have to be done around the house. They take the time to thank you for those small but meaningful tasks. You see, we stay in love with a person because we walk into the room or, or when they come home from work or for, from doing whatever, they really act like they are delighted to see you. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or maybe when you're in a room filled with other people and your eyes meet across the room and you can just tell by looking in their eyes that you are the most important person in that room. Folks, that's what builds a marriage. It isn't just the big things, it's the small things that we do daily on a consistent basis that will help us to build that relationship and make it stronger and more solid day by day. Now conversely, marriages are typically not destroyed by the big things like adultery, abuse, and desertion, although obviously some of them are. Most commonly, most commonly they're destroyed over the course of time by our failure to do the little things consistently that will build that relationship. Sometimes we just need to ask ourselves, what was it that drew us together in the first place? And we need to make sure that we're still doing those things, whether it's opening a door for them or squeezing their hand to let them know that you have their back, or a million and other one other things that will allow us to communicate our love and our commitment to that person. Remember John's letter to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2? I know you do if you're a Bible student. You may remember that Jesus, through John, spent several verses talking frankly and sincerely to the Ephesian congregation and then telling them all the things they were doing right. So that tells us that there's something about spiritual diplomacy even in those verses. The first thing he did was say, here's what you're doing right. But you also may remember that in Revelation 2 and verse 4 is where the Lord, through John's pen, writing to the Ephesian congregation, says, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. That is, the love that prompted them to become Christians in the first place was no longer there. The love for Christ above all things that would prompt them to live daily for Jesus was no longer a part of their lives. At least that's Jesus' evaluation of them, and we have to assume that that was exactly correct. That's the problem identified in verse 4. Listen to the solution in verse 5. Here it is. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... That just means remember when things were different, when you still love the Lord. So remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. That just means go back to doing the things that you were doing when you did love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The implication is if you'll go back to doing those things, then you will again feel the way you want to feel again. 
I believe that that is a wonderful example for how our marriages should work. If you're no longer in love with that person, go back and start doing the things that you were doing with one another and to one another and for one another back when you were in love. And God's guarantee is that that relationship can be restored, but it takes two. We all know that. Have you ever heard the expression, act better than you feel? Well, what about this one? It's better to act yourself into a better way of feeling than to feel yourself into a better way of acting. That works in marriages, too. So what about our families? Let's, let's broaden that scope for a moment. I've told the story here about a couple who had a two-year-old child in the back seat in one of the child safety seats, strapped in the, in the back when, when their car stalled on a railroad track. I mean, a parent's absolute worst nightmare. And sure enough, just seconds later, they heard the roar and the horn of an approaching train. They didn't have time to do anything except reach across the back of the seat, detach the seat with the baby still in it, and throw it open out an open window of the car before the train impacted their car and killed them both. And we read those stories or we hear about them and we say, man, that's real love. I mean, that's a parent's love for a child we're talking about there, and you're exactly right about that, Ed. But you see, the problem with that story is most of us will go our entire lives without ever replicating that experience, thankfully. That is, we'll go our whole lives without having to show how much we love a child by sacrificing our own life so that we can make sure that their life continues. Or that we'll never have to rush into a burning building to, to pull our children out at the sacrifice of our own. We'll go our whole lives without ever having to do that. And yet... We have to, or maybe I should rather say, we get to tuck them in every night. We get to read a Bible story to them every night. We get to, we get to pray with them every night. You see, we get to make the choice to go to their ball game or their concert or whatever it is every week instead of me going out and fishing and hunting or whatever it is that I'd rather be doing. People told me when our kids were very small to enjoy them because they wouldn't stay that age very long. You know what? They were exactly right. But what they didn't tell me is that the time with my children would pass so very, very quickly. It's like the poem says, turn around and she's one. Turn around and she's four. Turn around and she's a young woman going out the door. I know I'm going out on a limb here by saying that if you'll take care of the little things in your family on a consistent basis that need to be done with and for your family, the big things will in all likelihood take care of themselves. Problem comes when we assume that if we're squared away on the big things, then the little things will be easy. But for the most of us, it's really the other way around. Listen to me, please, please. This is the central message I, I want to communicate to you this morning. And I know that you're listening. Most of life consists of small things. So if we're waiting to show our devotion to God... Or our devotion to our families by some big, obvious, well-publicized demonstration of love. Well, most of us will go our entire lives without ever doing that or having that experience. We either commit ourselves to doing the small things well or by default we do them poorly or maybe not at all. One other thing I want to mention before we quit, and that's the stewardship concept, also works in the light of, under the umbrella of this very principle that we're looking at this morning. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. If you've looked up the word steward, then it, it, it gives meaning, obviously, to the passage. Passage isn't going to mean much to you if you don't know what the words mean. 
you might want to write that down. That's profound. So, so knowing what the words are really helps. And, and when Paul describes a steward needing to be faithful in that passage, I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's a great day in a Christian's life when he or she first comes to realize that all of those things that Ron was talking about a moment ago that God has blessed us with, those were all God's to begin with in the first place. And that God is just loaning them to us for a temporary time while we're on this earth. And, he will, and, and the faithfulness part of it is how well we use those or maybe even how poorly we use those things that God has entrusted to our care. I remember Paul Faulkner in one of his film series talked about finally getting the car of his dreams. You know, always wanted one of those little, after he got the kids grown and gone, wanted a little sports car, and he finally got one, I mean, just with all the options that he wanted on it, and, and within four months, it was totaled. I mean, some guy had broadsided him in an intersection, and he said, I can remember, thankfully, no one was hurt, but I, he said, I remember walking around that car that I had just bought four months earlier, my dream car, thankful that I was unhurt, but as he walked around the car and surveyed the damage, he said, Lord, I am terribly sorry about your car. You see, it was liberating for him to say, that, that's not my car. No worries. That, that's the Lord's car. And if he wants it total, that's okay with me. You see, it, it's, it is emancipating to get to the point in life where you can honestly say, I own these things, but they don't own me. Here's the problem, I think, sometimes when it comes to our giving down at church. It's so easy to rationalize and say, man, if I had a million dollars, how many missionaries and how many orphans' homes could I support with that much money? How much good I could do? And all the while, God is asking, what are you doing with the 40 grand I'm giving you a year right now? We justify ourselves for not giving as, as we've truly been prospered by saying, you know, if I won the the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, what I could do for the Lord. Or we can realize that our Christian stewardship stands or falls on the basis of the check, whatever size that it might be that we write every week and put in the contribution plate. You see, when it comes to the end of our life, folks, we're not going to be evaluated on the basis of how many houses and how many cars and how many big screen TVs we had. We're going to be judged based on what we did with what we have right where we are. And so it is that almost without exception, the larger events of our life are made up of the small, sometimes unnoticeable moments. The father who waits until he can give several hours of undivided attention to his kids probably is never going to find that kind of time freed up in his schedule. But it's when he puts down his paper or when he turns off the TV or his tablet or whatever and spends some, some time tumbling with his kids in the floor, that's when he's got a real handle on parenting. When he will take those moments, sometimes just the small moments, to have those meaningful times with his kids, those are the moments that they remember. In fact, I had a conversation with someone like that not long ago, and we were talking about what, what photograph in your mind you have of growing up. What is the single most standout moment in your life? Without exception, it wasn't Christmas morning or birthday morning for the most of us. It was something insignificant that happened with us, that our parents did with us as we were growing up. Those small moments that we captured in our mind and we look back and you say, that's, that's the thing that I remember most and that makes me happiest when I look back on my life. And, you know, when, it's, when, when we give God the small moments of our lives, the small words, the small actions, it's only then that we've got a real handle on this thing called Christianity. So the question isn't, 
What would I give to the Lord and to his cause if somehow I got $5 million? Question is, what are we giving to the Lord of what we do have? And the question isn't, what would you do for the Lord's kingdom and his service? And how much time would you spend in kingdom service if you were ever able to retire? Because the Bible clearly teaches, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least will also be unjust in much. That's our text, Luke 16, verse 10. By the way, the simple English Bible version reads that passage like this. I tell you, if a person can be trusted with small things, he can also be trusted with big things. Jesus explained to the two and the five talented men in Matthew 25, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. What was the master telling those two men? He was telling them, I'm about to give you a really big promotion. Why? Well, it's because you've been faithful in handling these few things. Then you're the person that I can trust. You're the person that I can use powerfully and effectively in my service. So today, I'm just asking you this question. From my heart to yours, are you faithful in the small things? If so, then you'll be faithful in the big things because God gives us that guarantee. Let me tell you the most important and the most powerful little word that you can speak this morning. It's the word yes. In reply to the question, do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And if you're willing to say yes to that question, we would be delighted to take you and baptize you into Christ so that everything in your life will change. Your whole worldview will be transformed. All of your past mistakes will be washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you'll leave this place as a brand new creature in Christ. Won't you come while we stand, while we sing?